Well, it's a very big pile of questions. Uh, I don't think we're going to get through half of them tonight, but we'll just start. I'll read the questions and comment on them. If you have any follow-up questions that you would like to ask, just raise your hand. So... We can also do it in that way as well. First question was about, you talk about the relationship between karuna and metta, that is compassion and loving kindness. Are there practices aimed specifically at developing karuna, or is it just an outcome of the vipassana and metta practices? Another related question to metta. How does doing the metta meditation actually cultivate happiness for other beings? In other words, by saying may all beings be happy, how can it be so if beings are following unskillful actions and are not open to real joy? The feeling behind metta is a wish for other beings to be happy. And so in that sense, the field of people or beings for metta is everyone. Whether people are in good circumstances or difficult circumstances, it's just a wish for them to be happy. Compassion is a feeling that is specifically directed to beings who are in suffering. And so when you begin the compassion practice, and there is a specific practice, just as there is one for metta, when you first begin the compassion practice, you think of someone who is in the most difficult kind of situation, the most intense kind of suffering. That's who you think of as a way of bringing forth that feeling of compassion, of wanting to help, of wanting to alleviate that suffering. So the feeling is quite different than the feeling of metta. In doing the compassion meditation, what is repeated is only one phrase, may you be free of suffering, may you be free of suffering. And so all of one's effort and energy is to arouse that sense of alleviation of difficulty. Whereas in doing the metta, one can wish for many good things for people. The question about whether our doing metta actually has an effect on people's minds. It's related to two things. It's related to the power of our own metta, to the power of our own mind, and also to the receptivity of the other being. It actually can have an effect. As an extreme example you know, of a very powerful mind sending metta out to a very unreceptive being, In the time of the Buddha, there was one monk who was quite jealous of the Buddha. 
and went around different ways, tried to create trouble and difficulties and break up the Sangha, trying to discredit the Buddha in any way he could. So one day he had the idea to goad this notorious mad elephant you know, who had been diagnosed as mad. <laughs> this monk, Devadatta, got this elephant and as the Buddha was walking down this narrow lane for alms, Devadatta managed to prod this elephant to charge right ahead to the Buddha. I don't know if you've ever been in the path of a charging elephant. <laughs> They're big. <laughs> They're really big. What the Buddha did, as it said, is he started pervading metta towards this being, towards this elephant. Be happy, be happy. And so great was the power of the Buddha's metta that slowly the elephant went from a run to a walk to a stop. And it said that just as he came up in front of the Buddha, the elephant kind of dropped down on its knees, you know, in obeisance. Whether it actually happened or not, we have no way of knowing. (laughs) But I think it illustrates the possibility when the mind is very strong, very concentrated, it can actually influence other people's minds, other beings. It's said that often when the Buddha wanted to call someone to him, he would do it simply by sending metta to that person. You just direct these beams of metta, of loving feeling. And then these people would all of a sudden have this urge, oh, I must go see the Buddha. You know, because of the power of that, of that love and the attraction of the love. At one point, I was doing some metta, walking through the forest, uh, and I passed this a dog that was quite aggressive. And I was went, be happy, be happy, be happy. <laughs> and it came over and bit me. <laughs> <laughs> so I went back to Burma to practice a little more. <laughs> it did point out actually useful <laughs> in reflection upon that whole incident, I really examined, was it really metta that I was sending, or was it be happy but stay over there, (laughs) you know, and don't bother me. And there was a good deal of that in the... uh... Obviously, also, the more open we are, and the more receptive is the person to whom we're sending it, the more easily is it felt. And so it works in in both these ways. Mm-hmm. 
um, I think that if you just keep sending it to the benefactor, right, especially having having just come and started, the the recent impressions are going to be there. But I think they'll kind of fade away, you know, pretty pretty soon, and it'll be easier just to focus more completely on the benefactor, generating generating the feelings. One of the things that's very helpful before actually sending the metta is to this is when you're doing the metta meditation you know, as uh, an intensive practice, to reflect on, to actually do a systematic reflection on the good things that the benefactor has done for you. And so you can really use the thought process in that way, just to go through, you know, and to, to remember the different, the different good things that have happened. That might engage the mind. You know, and really help to focus on that person. I think if you try to send the metta to this difficult person at this point, it'll be a little bit like my sending metta to that dog. <laughs> be happy, be happy, and I wish I could stop thinking about you. <laughs> and so I don't think that would be so helpful. Attachment to views and opinions is quite deeply conditioned for me, causing suffering to myself and others. It is hard to detect, often remaining invisible until after damage is done. Do you have any specific suggestions for working with this quality of consciousness, particularly for seeing it rather sooner than later? I think there's a very uh, useful discrimination to make with regard to this question. And sometimes when we don't make that discrimination, we get caught up. And that is the discrimination between having views and opinions and being attached to views and opinions. Because sometimes when we think, well, I see this attachment to having views and opinions causes all this suffering. There might be an implication to ourselves in the mind, well, that means I shouldn't have views and opinions, which is patently impossible right, for most of us. And so then we get caught in this mind. If we see that it's possible to actually have a view and opinion about something, and so we can accept that that view and opinion is there, then we can focus in on specifically that place of attachment and identification. So we're not trying not to have views and not to have opinions, but rather to see if it's possible not to get so caught and so identified with them that we create a lot of polarity between ourselves and others. One way of focusing on this process of identification sooner rather than later is to pay careful attention to the feeling state as we're going through the day. Which means we're going along and we may be thinking about various things 
And all of a sudden, some opinion comes up about something, or some view about something. And it's not simply seen as just what it is, which is a particular opinion. But when there's an identification, just as that comes up, we can feel a tightening around it. We can feel a charge. We can feel a sense of being right. All of those things which tend to collapse us into this opinion, into this view. If we're watching carefully and we watch to see when that tightening takes place, when the charge begins to happen, that is a very good signal that we have gone from the place of having an opinion to the place of being very attached and identified with it. It's really using using the radar in our mind, the radar for suffering. If we stay sensitive to those times when we begin to suffer, that's a signal, that's a great signal that in some way or another we're getting caught. We're getting identified. One of the words that describes this for me, this process, to me, when that happens, it feels like I'm going along, going along, going along, and all of a sudden there's a glitch. You know, things are going along smoothly, and then... And we can feel that sense. We can feel it in the mind. We can feel it in the body of solidifying or identifying around something. That moment of feeling that glitch, that's the place to stop. It's the place to take it as a signal. Something is happening here. I'm getting caught. It's very helpful to see that and to begin to unhook from the attachment to the view because then we are actually able to to consider the view more dispassionately in ourselves and see if it has merit or not. And if it does have merit, to act on it in a dispassionate way. And it creates a situation actually of greater openness and communication. The signal is right here. If we pay attention to what it feels like here, we'll know. Does insight necessarily happen on the conceptual level? And if not, how, how do we translate our experiential insight into concept, thought, and words in order to communicate or understand? The insights of insight meditation are not particularly conceptual. They're much more intuitive, which means not something vague. You know, we have some kind of vague intuition about something. Intuitive in this sense means a clear, direct seeing or experience of how things are, seeing it in a different way. And so we're going along, going along, we're watching the breath, watching the breath. So a simple example, you know, which you might have experienced already. Going along, watching the breath, and all of a sudden, even if it's just 
for a couple of moments or a few minutes, maybe the mind settles into a deeper kind of calm. But instead of struggling to be with the breath, the mind just begins to rest there in a very calm way, in a more effortless way. That's a kind of insight. That's an insight into the nature of calm and tranquility. That's not, there's no thinking about it. You're not sitting reflecting, well, what's calm and what's tranquility? So as you're going along, and all of a sudden the mind settles into a different space. There are many such different spaces. Many levels of calm, many levels of understanding the process of change. And each one is as if we just settle into this new way of seeing, of being. What often happens, the mind gets so excited, often by each new you know, experience, that then we start reflecting about it. Oh, I'm so calm, I'm so calm, this is great. <laughs> Which is not the best thing in the world for the calm. Or we start reflecting about impermanence, or whatever, whatever the particular insight is. A lot of care is needed. Because if you don't note those reflections and you get caught up in them, and in some way Dhamma reflections become extremely compelling and interesting, they themselves at certain times can become a hindrance to the furtherance of the practice. It's possible for people to actually start obsessing with Dhamma thoughts. about genuine insights that they've had. So you want to separate out the actual intuitive insight from the thinking about it. There's very rarely a problem in finding words to describe it. The mind will not have that trouble. If it does, you can come talk to me (laughs) about it. Please help to increase my effort or urgency of practice. I think I'm taking it too easy. Of course, I'm being very hard on myself for doing so. (laughs) Yet I'm still skipping practice periods. This is another like question. Any hints to make it possible to be more continuous with mindfulness during work periods, resting, sleeping? There's some very interesting balance that we need to discover for ourselves between urgency and effort on the one hand and surrender on the other. And it sounds like these two things are contradictory and they're not. They really work together to form the proper attitude or balance in practice. Some of the things that inspire a sense of urgency can be a reflection to yourself of why you're here. Now, what is your aim? What is your purpose? To reconnect with the energy that brought you here, which was quite considerable. 
It's not easy to arrange to do a three-month retreat. And so you must have had a very strong motivation. What was that? What actually are you doing this for? It's easy in the midst of sitting and walking day after day to, to lose that connection, to forget. And so we lose the sense of real urgency and commitment. We forget why we're doing it. Also to reflect really on the fleeting nature of this retreat, of this life. Now at this point, I don't know how it is for you, but it may seem that the retreat just looms on forever. It doesn't. It's going to be a few blinks of the eye and we're going to be having the closing talk. It just, it goes very quickly. And so you don't want to postpone arousing a real sense of commitment in doing it. Often when you read the Buddhist texts, he would be encouraging and exhorting and admonishing you know, the monks and the nuns and the lay people. He'd say, there are trees, there are the roots of trees. Go practice lest you regret it later. Because I think he had the sense of just how fast it all goes. And unless we use the time that has opened for us, which is itself this amazingly precious gift, unless we use it fully and completely, there is a sense of having somehow missed an opportunity. So that's one side of it, arousing this sense of urgency through a reconnection with why we've come here and a sense of how fleeting it is. Because it's very, very quick. And our lives are like that. You know, and we don't know, you have this three months. Maybe you think, well, I'll do three-month course next year too, or the year after. Don't know. Absolutely don't know. The other side of the balance is a sense of surrender. And what the surrender means, it's really a surrender to the Dhamma. So that we're not practicing with agitation, we're not practicing with expectation, we're not practicing with ambition or grasping. We have a sense of urgency and the importance and the value. And at the same time, there's a softening and a surrender to just be with it as it unfolds. Something that helped me a lot, actually two things, with this sense of surrender and cultivating it in the early years of my practice, one was, it's like I gave myself a little talking to. And I said, Joseph, you just sit and walk. Sit and walk and sit and walk. That's your job. Then whatever happens, let it happen. And the simplicity of that, I didn't have to make anything happen. I just had to do my part, which was to sit and walk and sit and walk and sit and walk and just do it. Somehow making it that simple made it easier to surrender to that process. And as a follow-up to that, what I would do at the beginning of each sitting, I would would just make a kind of resolve or statement in the mind 
I surrender to the Dhamma. Whatever happens, let it happen. And somehow it just softened. It softened things and allowed the mind to become more accepting. And it went through all the cycles and all the ups and downs. And that's what was happening. And it was okay. And I kept sitting and walking and sitting and walking. And so just see if you can play with this balance. When you feel like you need more of the urgency side, do the appropriate reflections. When you feel like you need more of the surrender side, you know, work with that. If the Buddha avoids, avoided questions concerning the afterlife, why does Buddhism mention reincarnation and all those topics at all? Actually, the Buddha didn't avoid questions of the afterlife. He spoke a lot about the afterlife. Not only that, often, you know, as different practitioners in his time would die and pass away, the other monks would often come to the Buddha and say, well, where did so-and-so end up? You know, in, in what realm... Uh, and the Buddha would at different times uh, say, you know, oh yeah, so-and-so ended up in this realm or that realm. And so the idea of uh, future lives and past lives is very much part of the teaching. It's a vast vision. Now one of the other questions is, uh, please Tell us about the Buddhist cosmology. Who are the devas? Can they help us? Can we be aware of them? Who else is there? (laughs) (laughs) Which really, it's just the right question for me because I love this contemplation of the vastness of it all. When the Burmese monks were here this uh, spring, they gave me a chart, and it's a chart of the 31 planes of existence, starting from the lower hell realms and animal and demon worlds and human worlds and the deva realms of sense pleasures and the the Brahma worlds, you know, of uh, mind ecstasy. And it's a very esoteric chart. But what inspires me about it is just the sense of the expansiveness of this whole vision, you know, and the realization both that this human birth that we have in this whole scheme of things is exceedingly precious because it is very rare in this whole big vision of possibilities to actually have the chance to hear and to practice the Dhamma. It's not a usual occurrence. And we can see that even from this one human realm on this planet Earth, how few people you know, have the opportunity or the interest or the connection, the possibility to actually practice this path of understanding. It's extremely rare.
Munindraji, one of my first teachers, used to like to describe at great length these different deva realms. Um, and they're wonderful. Everything's pleasant. Bodies of light. People just sporting around, having a good time. There's often a reluctance to do any practice there because people are enjoying themselves so much. But for those who have practiced here, actually the path continues. And there are more um, aryas. Arya is the word to refer to, to anybody who's reached any of the stages of enlightenment. It's said that there are more aryas in the deva realms than, than even on earth. And so there, there is a lot of dhamma that can happen there if one has practiced before and has the parami, has the roots. Otherwise, we just get lost in the pleasures. There are deva protectors. You know, just beings who have a protective role. Um, and in the different Buddhist traditions, you know, they're acknowledged in different ways. But ultimately, we all have to do the work ourselves. It said, the Buddha himself said of himself that Buddhas only point the way. So even though there are very beneficent influences, and sometimes when you go to places where people have practiced for a long time, and if if you're tuned in a certain way, you can really feel that there's just the presence. There's a presence. You know, of beings. It's very, very strong in Bodh Gaya, in the place where the Buddha was enlightened. You go there and you sit under the tree and the place just feels alive with beings of all kinds. As Munindra used to say at the end of his long raps about the Devas, say you don't have to believe it. You know, because many people in the West don't. It's true, but you don't have to believe it. (laughs) That was his. There are beings who actually have the power, you know, to see these different realms. Early in the retreat, I spoke about Deepama, who was this extraordinary woman, deep stages of enlightenment and, and very great power of mind. And she used to describe sometimes the different realms uh, from her experience, you know, just from what she was able to see through her own practice. So that is a potential for all of us. It's not wisdom. You know, people can have powers and not particularly be wise. And so it's not a path to get lost on. But it is a potential in the mind. You know, once we've done the work of Vipassana and really purified the mind, there are many realms to explore. Describe the level of concentration necessary to do Vipassana successfully and how do you best balance the two? There's another one. You said there was a stage of practice where the mind gets quite absorbed going into higher states of concentration. Could you describe this more fully? Actually, Sharon is going to talk in the next few days at more length about different levels of concentration. The kind that is necessary for Vipassana 
It's not the concentration of absorption into the object. It's called access concentration, which means that it's a level of concentration basically where the hindrances are overcome. They may still arise from time to time, but the momentum is on the side of the mindfulness. And one of the images used to describe this and may give you a sense of where the practice is going with respect to concentration. If you imagine, you know, a big trough and somebody... No, back up. Imagine an arch. And somebody's balancing on the top of the arch. And they fall down to one side. And they have to struggle to get back to the top. They fall down the other side and struggle to get back up. In the beginning, that's what our minds are like. You know, we're trying to stay with the breath of some object and we keep getting pulled off and it's a struggle to, to get back and to stay. And so it's this constant effort and struggle. At a certain point, the arch becomes a trough. And it's as if we're balancing or resting in the bottom and from time to time we're pulled out of that place but the mind falls naturally back to it. We're pulled off on the other side and the mind falls back. That place of inversion from arch to trough happens when we build up the momentum of concentration. And at a certain point it just clicks in and it starts to work by itself. This becomes quite a good development in practice. First, because the hindrances are no longer so strong at that time, and there's a lot of momentum. The practice becomes much more effortless at that time. I know that it's possible to actually develop this level of concentration because when I started my practice, I had none at all. I would sit... And at the end of the hour, I would stop thinking. (laughs) That's what my sitting practice was. My sitting practice was thinking. And it took some work. It took quite a lot of work. But it also gave me a lot of confidence now in working with people that it can be done. Because I know how my own mind started. It just over and over and over again we keep coming back and for each of us it will take a different length of time it doesn't matter if we're persistent and persevering this power of concentration actually develops there are two ways to develop it quickly and it's the ways we've been suggesting during the retreat One is giving emphasis to the primary object so that there really is an effort to collect the attention on the breath, either the rise or fall or the in and out. And in addition, to label and note everything else that arises predominantly so that in those moments we're also developing a concentrated mind. If you ignore the other objects, then you're developing concentration just when you happen to be on the breath and the rest of the time you lose momentum. If you're working with this dual approach of emphasizing the primary object, 
and also labeling moment after moment anything which calls the attention away from it. So then there's a steadiness. You're just building and building and building, and at a certain point it clicks in. And again, there's a very important balance of making an effort, of really arousing the energy, but not struggling too much, not striving, not expecting, which in turn is a hindrance to the concentration. So it's that effort and surrender. These two are very important. How does the Vipassana taught at IMS compare or contrast with Vipassana taught elsewhere? For example, Goenkaji's course at the Vipassana Meditation Center nearby. There are many ways to do Vipassana. Vipassana basically is the cultivation of the four foundations of mindfulness. When you read that sutta of the Buddha, each foundation of mindfulness, it's like there are 16, I don't know, some number of ways to practice mindfulness of the body, some number of ways to practice mindfulness of feelings of the mind. So there are many techniques which are cultivating the same kind of mindfulness and insight. In your talk on no-self, you posed the question, if there is no actor, then to whom do karmic karmic fruits return? I don't recall this question getting explicitly answered. (laughs) Who causes and who affects in a self-free universe? If there is no self, what or who is it, or who is reborn? When I was a freshman in college, I gave myself a week. I was really burning with this question, and I not this one in particular, I gave myself a week to decide whether God existed or not. <laughs> because it just felt to me that my whole life depended on the answer to that question. You know? At the end of the week, it was not resolved. In like manner, this question of selflessness, or the understanding of selflessness, is progressive because it goes very, very deep. It's just sort of at the heart center of what the whole teachings are about. If you plant a seed in the ground and the seed sprouts becomes a sapling, becomes a tree, becomes a fruit. And in the fruit there's new seeds, drop to the ground, sprout, become sapling, become tree, bear new fruit. That first seed is not carried up through the trunk into the fruit and then somehow miraculously divides among all the fruits. It's not that anything is carried Rather, it's a process of transformation. 
the seed conditioned by various causes like the earth, the soil and the water and the sun, the seed becomes the sapling, becomes the tree, becomes the fruit. There is no element, there is no unchanging element which is carried through that process, but rather it is a process of transformation. This moment, this experience conditions the next, conditions the next, conditions the next. And so it is an unfolding process. That is what is meant by selflessness. Selflessness means that there is no unchanging core which is carried throughout life or from life to life. But rather what we are in this very life is a process unfolding. And it's not unfolding chaotically. It's unfolding lawfully. Because of certain conditions, certain other things happen. You change the conditions, the effects change. Does that seem clear to you? It seems so clear to me. (laughs) Sometimes people imagine, or when they think of the idea of selflessness, I don't know, maybe there's an imagination of something disappearing. You know, all of a sudden, (laughs) not here anymore. (laughs) And that might be a nice hope, but... What is so fascinating about this whole understanding of selflessness is that everything remains exactly the same as it has always been. Because it's not a question of getting rid of something. It's a question of seeing how things really are. The notion of some unchanging self which is carried through experience that is simply a concept. We are ed- we're making that up. We've made up that idea and added it to what's actually going on. And so the process of meditation and the process of realization is not to get rid of something that's there. It's just to open to how things actually are unfolding. in the course of the practice, now at first we're just really collecting our attention. When we've developed that certain degree of concentration, we can begin to see in a deeper way the nature of the process and we see that things are changing very rapidly. That both what we call the subject and the object, although those are only inadequate names, both the knowing and the object are themselves changing in every single instant. And this becomes an intuitive insight, something we see for ourselves. And so we begin to see that in this, in this laboratory that we're investigating, there is the seeing for ourselves that there is nothing which is remaining constant. That the knowing, the object, the mental quality, everything 
It's just arising and vanishing moment after moment. It's not happening randomly. It's not happening chaotically. It's happening according to an order. I hope that helps a little bit. I, if you just kind of sit with the idea and you know, continue your practice, it will become clearer to you through your own experience. How can we tell the difference between the feeling of unpleasantness and the mental formation of aversion? It's really simple, very simple. As you're observing pain, a painful feeling, you know, in the knee or the back, just watch the difference between those times when you're simply being mindful of it and the mind is not reacting. You are aware that it's a painful feeling, but the mind is equanimous. You're simply aware and you're noticing and you're feeling it. And just watch. Watch for that moment when for some reason it becomes too much. You know, and the mind starts recoiling from it. Right in that moment you can see how the force of aversion is working. Before that you've been aware of the unpleasantness, but there's been no aversion in the mind. There's been equanimity. And at a certain point the aversion sets in and you can feel You can feel more suffering, you can feel the tightness, you can feel the contraction. These are two questions which are related. It seems to me that the practice of metta mainly functions as an instrument of vipassana. The goal is liberation through insight. The other possibility is to strive for liberation just as the means to interact in a fully compassionate way. If by nature we are all equal and suffering is a universal fact, this would be the only adequate response. In the first case, the goal is like an object which can be acquired through one's efforts. Doesn't this invite to get strongly fixed upon it, especially in a society in which individualism is the guiding philosophy? In the second case, the goal is just a dynamic ability which cannot be appropriated. Related to that question, your perspective, please, on the place and value of arousing bodhicitta, which is a phrase that's used a lot in the Tibetan teachings, of arousing that heart of wisdom which practices for the welfare of all beings, that that becomes the motivation. This is a very elaborate question.
on a simple level, the arousing of bodhicitta, that is, that sense that we're not practicing just for ourselves, but we're practicing for everyone, I think is tremendously helpful. It can be a source of great energy and great inspiration, especially in times of difficulty. You know, where if it were just for ourselves, we might flag in our efforts, but if we can really connect with that place that it's not just for ourselves, that we're doing this work out of compassion for the suffering that's in the world, that's a source of great strength, it's a source of tremendous strength. And it's a beauty of the mind. You know, it's, when, we were with the, when we were with the Dalai Lama in Los Angeles, of course, so much of his teaching is about um, altruistic service, putting others before self. You know, so the teachings over and over again really are a heart opener. And we get out of kind of our tight, constricted view of things and we can practice from this much more spacious and energized place. In that respect, I think that cultivating these thoughts, practicing for the welfare of others is a wonderful reflection and something really to, to integrate you know, in one's own heart. And it's true. Not only is it a thought, we actually are practicing for everybody. On another level, and this gets a little more uh, sophisticated in terms of paths people follow, When this feeling of practicing to alleviate the suffering of others is tremendously strong, it can lead to the motivation to become a Buddha. That's a very big job, long undertaking. But what motivated the Bodhisattva, which is the Buddha before his enlightenment, what motivated him, you know, through that endless period of time was this feeling of great compassion. This feeling is quite rare, the the intensity of that feeling. And according to this tradition of the Pali Canon, which we've all studied and practiced, actually what the Buddha taught was the way for beings to liberate themselves and to help other beings along the way without necessarily becoming Buddha. And so that is what the word arahant means. Somebody who has freed their minds from defilements. So the mind is free. The mind is purified. And all along that path, one is practicing not only for one's own liberation, but also for the welfare of others. And so there are different ways of approaching this. I used to worry about it a lot. 
you know, well, which one should I be on and which is for me? And it just caused me a lot of grief, all those thoughts. And again, what came to my rescue was this quality of surrender to the Dhamma. I said, Joseph, just do your practice. Let whatever happens, happen. And it, it became much easier then. And it just allowed the Dhamma to unfold in its own way. It is my experience that singing and dancing can be some of the surest ways to the divine. Would you explain or talk about Buddhism's position on this? Well, aside from some chanting and Tibetan Lama dances, there's really not much singing and dancing (laughs) (laughs) in this... Um, What's interesting also, just again being at this conference where there were many traditions represented, there was the Christian tradition, Sufi tradition, Jewish tradition, and we were doing our little Vipassana workshop, you know, and they divided us all into rooms, and we were quite quiet. (laughs) We were just kind of sitting and walking, and rooms on both sides of us, you know, the rabbis there were kind of leading big choruses, and the Sufis were... (laughs) And it was just the contrast was very noticeable. <laughs> it's, I really couldn't say about anything about you know, where those practices lead, because I don't know. Uh, the one point I wanted to make in reflecting about this question was not a comment about the different traditions or even the different practices, since I haven't done them. But just to make a a clear distinction for you between feelings of ecstatic feelings uh, or ecstatic union and the wisdom of emptiness. But they're two different things. It is possible, and I had that feeling, even just in, a, in little contact, with the kind of real ecstasy that's not, that's not in a sensual way, really, in a kind of spiritual way. You know, where the mind is very pure and bright and luminous, you know, and tremendous feelings of joy those feelings of ecstasy, I think, can be entered you know, in a wide range of disciplines and practices. And I think singing and dancing might very well lead to those kinds of states. And they're beautiful. Feelings of ecstasy, even of a quite spiritual kind, you know, a non-sensual kind, is different those feelings are different than the kinds of insight or fruition which happens through Vipassana practice. So it's just, 
you know, as as you practice, I think you'll get a sense of that. Um, and it's just now is not the time to be thinking or reflecting about this. But you know, as you leave here and as you try to integrate this whole experience and, and other paths. There's a certain, there's a certain kind of spiritual maturity just to begin to see where different kinds of um, disciplines and practices lead. Because there are different kinds of paths, you know, and they can go to different places. Uh, And they can complement one another also, but not necessarily in conflict. I think I'll just do one more question. Some of them were quite funny. (laughs) In the main, do people lose or gain weight while here? (laughs) 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 Why don't we end on that one? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.